Let's pray together. Oh God, you are our shepherd. It's an old agrarian metaphor, but it speaks of tenderness as well as strength. In today's teaching, shepherd us through. Be front and center. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know this is going to sound a bit strange, but because of the kindness of a friend, I've been to purgatory a little over ten years ago. We were counting down to a global satellite event called Net 98. And this friend felt that we needed a little bit of R&R before that big event came, and so he sent us to purgatory. And I'm telling you, we came back so refreshed. Anybody gives me an opportunity again to go to purgatory, I'd go in a heartbeat. I'm talking about purgatory, Colorado. Beautiful mountainside resort outside uh, Durango. So, truth in advertising, I have been to purgatory. But I've also been to the purgatory that you may have been thinking of. Been there intellectually. I was having Bible studies with a Roman Catholic college professor not far from here. We're getting into the Word together. Actually, when we began the studies, he was a Protestant college professor. But he fell in love with a Roman Catholic woman and converted to Catholicism. After his conversion, he said, Hey, Dwight, we've got we to gotta study now the big differences. What should we study? I said, What do you say we study purgatory? He said, that's a deal. So we agreed. We would each write a paper. He would write a paper defending the teaching of purgatory. And I would write a paper questioning it. We exchanged papers. But after that, I never heard from him again. Repeated emails. Repeated telephone calls. Visits to his office where he teaches. To no avail, leading me to conclude that perhaps his silence was a tacit recognition of the position in that paper that I had shared with him. We have some Roman Catholic friends of mine who are here right now. We have some Roman Catholic friends, I do, listening on the radio. Right now, watching television, right now, and for you, I, I wish you would allow me to share just a, just, a, just a synopsis of what I shared with my college professor friend. Now, for the rest of you who may not be familiar with the Roman Catholic teaching of purgatory, here's a brief summary, all right? This is from the latest Catechism of the Catholic Church. This would be sections 1030 and 1031. I'll put it on the screen for you. Quoting from the Catechism, All who die in God's grace in friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. 
The Catechism goes on. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned, which would be hell. The tradition of the church, by reference to certain texts of Scripture, speaks of a cleansing fire, end quote. Rome teaches that God has provided a burning, cleansing fire into which all who have died and who would be saved must go before they can be fully and finally saved into the joy of heaven and enter the beatific vision of God. Those who die with venial sins, those are sins for which there is divine forgiveness, but those who die with venial sins will then go to purgatory to pay the temporal punishment for their already forgiven sins. But those who die with mortal sins, unconfessed. The only way a mortal sin can be forgiven is if it is confessed in the sacrament of uh, the confession. But if they die with mortal sins, unconfessed, they will go straight to hell to pay the eternal punishment for their now never-to-be-forgiven sins. The fires of purgatory and hell are identical. The difference is in the function of the fires. Purgatory fires are for temporary cleansing and hell fires are for eternal punishment. Now, Rome further teaches and provides that one's tenure or length of stay in purgatory after death can be adjusted or shortened by penitential and sacrificial acts of the living before they die and by penitential and sacrificial acts performed by the living on behalf of the dead who are already in Purgatory. Hence, the Pope can offer what are called indulgences, wherein the sinner's temporal punishment in purgatory can be reduced through a partial indulgence or eliminated through a plenary or full indulgence. That is why Roman priests perform memorial masses for the dead, giving the surviving family members an opportunity to procure a reduced sentence in purgatory for that deceased loved one. Now, here's the question. Does the Bible teach a further cleansing of sinners after they have died and before they enter heaven? The answer to that question, obviously, will determine the veracity of the doctrine of purgatory. In my paper to my college professor friend, I begin... And by the way, the paper is posted on our website. It's there right now. You'll be able to download it and study it for yourself. In that paper, I begin with a single text. And I wish for the few moments you and I have together, let's begin with that same text. Open your Bible, please, to the New Testament. It would be the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. By the way, if you didn't bring a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you because you're going to want to trace this one. Just, just keep your mind open. We're into the Word together. The book of Hebrews, that would be the, towards the end of the New Testament. If you, if you grab the pew Bible, which is the New King James Version... It'll be page 808 in the Pew Bible. I'm in the today's New International Version, the TNIV. And that will be the words that are on the screen. All right, Hebrews chapter 9. Please find Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's begin at the very end of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, So, verse 28, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And He will appear a second time. By the way, that's the only place in all of Scripture where the return of Christ is called the second appearing. 
the only place it's called the second coming. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Ladies and gentlemen, the sequence of the human journey is, in this passage, unmistakable. Here, here, here's the human journey. We're all on this journey, right? Life. That's where we all are right now. Death. After death, judgment, after which comes the return of Christ. Notice, we live, we die, and when we die, the record of our life is closed. It goes to the judgment, and then Christ returns. I.e., there is no further adjustment to our lives or cleansing of our hearts once we die. Because death is the close of human probation. That point is so critical, I need you to scribble it down right now. Pull out your, pull out your study guide, please. It's tucked away in your worship bulletin today. Pull out your study guide. Jot that down. Our friendly ushers, thank you, are going to quickly come by you in the overflow, up in the balcony, and here in the sanctuary as well. I want to make sure the brass, by the way. Ushers, can we send an usher up here? I'd like the brass to have uh, the study guides as well. All right. Eloise, can you come and uh, uh, serve our guests? We're so glad to have them, and I'd like them to be able to follow along as well. All right. To those of you who are watching, by the way, we're delighted to have you. It doesn't matter what you believe or don't believe, but for the next few moments, I hope you find this study fascinating. Get the same study guide. I'll put it on the screen for you right now. Go to our website, www. You see it there? www.pmchurch.tv. This is the final piece in a little three-part mini-series called The Truth About Hell. The teaching today that wraps it up, My Journey to Purgatory and Back. And by the way, those of you going to the website right now, you will also see their special paper on purgatory. You click there, you'll have that paper for your later brooding and study. So get the study guide, download it, and uh, please join us. Keep your hands up. Our ushers are coming your way. Let's go ahead and put that first line in, though. We're ready to go. Death marks the end of human probation. You say, what's the big deal, Dwight? Who cares? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Just give me a moment. Death marks the end of human probation, i.e., once we die, our eternal destiny is decided. Now, this needs to be very clear right here. There is no... Please don't misunderstand this. There is no second chance. The teaching of purgatory offers a a subtle second chance sort of theology wherein if you don't make it in this life, you can always depend on the afterlife. One more opportunity to be cleansed so that you can get saved and ready for heaven. By the way, Protestants, let us not be too hard on our Roman Catholic friends for we Protestants have also invented... A non-biblical second chance opportunity. It's, the, it's, it's human nature to want a second chance. Nobody wants to say, curtains, finis, this is it. And so what have Protestants come up with? They've come up with what's called the secret rapture. Jesus comes secretly and people that are ready go with Him. Then you got, if your wife is missing, you got seven years, buddy, to really get ready this time. It's second chance theology. And when He comes the third time, hopefully you'll be ready. We all want a second chance. And that's why this teaching is so urgent. The Bible is saying, hey, time out, time out. There is no second chance. Not, not uh, before Jesus comes. Not uh, after death. It's, death is it. Human probation closes at death. 
Are you thinking, well, this is just a little something from Hebrews. The whole Bible doesn't support this. Oh, let me take you now to the Bible's last book. We were just in Hebrews 9. Let's go to the last book of the Bible. In fact, this is the last page of your Bible. Find the last page of the New Testament. It should be Revelation 22. Take a look at Jesus' mighty exclamation as he's returning the second time. This is what he says. Find the last page of Revelation, the Apocalypse. I'm finding that too. Revelation 22. Take a look at this. Just one line. This is almost, if you have a red letter Bible, you can see this is the next to the last red letter line in all of Holy Scripture. All right? So this would be verse 12. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Look, this is Jesus speaking. I am coming. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what they have done. Oh, boy. Grab your pen real quick. Scribble it down. Will you note that when Christ returns to the earth the second time, he comes bringing his reward with him. Key point. He comes with his reward. So keep your pen moving. That reward presupposes a prior judgment has already taken place, rendering for every human being before Christ returns that reward. Some decision has already been made. Thus, the timeline, look, folks, the timeline for Hebrews 9, timeline for uh, Revelation 22 is the same. Same timeline. Life, start with life, that's where we all are. Then will come death. After death, judgment, rendering of a decision. After that, the return of Christ. Identical timeline. This timeline is vital. For it challenges the teaching that death is followed by an indefinite time of purgatorial cleansing after which there is a final judgment, as Rome teaches. No, 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 no. Key point. It's all over at death. Everything's over. Which is why life, come on guys, life is so critical. Aren't you glad for life? Hallelujah. Think of the alternative. We're glad to be alive. But life right now is critical. Jot it down. Death does not transition in Holy Scripture to human cleansing, but rather to divine judgment. Once we've died, it's over. Our eternal destinies are sealed. Oh, man, Dwight, I'm, I, I'm going to fear this death then. If this, is, if, this, if this is the final curtain, oh, my, I don't want to go. Hey, listen, nobody wants to die. But I want to tell you why you don't have to be afraid of death. The same apocalypse tells us why we don't have to be afraid of that which might happen to us after we die. This is a beautiful depiction of death. Just turn a few pages back to Revelation 14. You don't need a page number. Revelation 14, just a few pages back. Take a look at this description of death. I mean, who would be afraid of death if this is the truth? If the Bible is the truth about death, no need to be afraid. Look at this. Revelation 14, verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying... Alright, this is the voice of God. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead. When you approach death, you don't have to approach it with fear. What's going to happen to me after I die? No, 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 no. Blessed, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, the Spirit pipes in. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Death Rest, and now notice the very next line. Describe, you see that window right up there? You see that window high above the, we call it the rose window in this church. That window is being described in the very next verse, 
which is verse 14. And I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Death, rest, second coming. Now, would you jot that down, please? What follows death for the one who believes in Christ is rest and repose, not burning and suffering. You don't have to be afraid for what's awaiting you after death. It's rest and repose. Death doesn't come to the friends of God as some kind of doorway to punishment. Death comes, jot it down, death comes as a divine sleep for the child and friend of God. Sleep. That's it. You know what? If that's true, then you, you, want the best, you want the best deathbed confession you could ever give in your life? I'm going to share with you right now. You're going to read it. You're going to say, oh boy, do I, when I die, I want to die with those words on my lips. I'm going to take you to the greatest deathbed testimony you can give. Only the man's not on deathbed. Karen and I were in Rome back in May. And we went down into the Mamertine dungeon where it is reputed with strong uh, historical reliability that Paul himself was incarcerated in that subterranean hole. We climbed down into that hole awaiting his final... It would be beheaded. All right? So these are the last words he writes before his beheading. I want you to note the spirit with which you can approach death. Uh, you, You need to turn back to 2 Timothy. Let me give you a page number. If you have the Pew Bible, it'll be page 801. Just a few... uh, You've got to go back past uh, Hebrews. Just a few books back. 2 Timothy, the last will and testament of uh, Paul. Uh, This is so beautiful. Memorize these words. When you come to your death and I come to mine, I want to be able to repeat these words. As I'm breathing my last. This is beautiful. This is what Paul is doing. He knows he's about to die. This would be 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. Hey, hey guys, I know it's curtains for me. I, I, I have hours, maybe days, who knows. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I'm going to die. Now, notice verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. Isn't that amazing? Would you jot that down, please? Death for the Christian. Get this down. Never forget it. Death for the Christian means the race is finished. It means the faith has been kept. And it means the verdict of the judgment is already assured. You say, Dwight, can you really show that? Of course you can. He just said it, number one. But number two, let me tell you a word Paul uses here. You know that word for crown? A crown has been set aside for me. The Greek word for crown is Stephanos. From what's come, whence comes the name Stephen or Stephanie. It means that it's in the Greek Olympics. When you, <clears throat> excuse me, when you cross the finish line, they gave you this little laurel wreath, this little green thing that went around your head. That was the crown, Stephanos. It's the crown of victory. So it's talking about a race. Hey, listen, I, I love races. I love to race. Every time there's a race here on the campus, I sign up and pay my $5 so that I can run in the race. And for me, the reason that races are so fun is because it's such great fellowship. I get to talk to everybody who's running past me towards the finish line. I just talk to them as they come by. Hey, hey, nice to see you. Hey, I'll see you at the end. Hey, nice running short. Save a place for me. That kind of thing. Because you just interact with people as they run by you. And it's, <laughs> it just is a great experience. 
I don't know a lot about races. All right. Look, I don't know a lot about races, but this much I do know. When you've crossed the finish line, you don't have to run a few extra laps just to make sure you are qualified for the race. I repeat, when you cross the finish line, the race is over. There aren't a few more laps through purgatory just to make sure you're really qualified to finish the race. I'll jot it down. When you come to the threshold of death, you cross the finish line of life and salvation. Death is that tape. You run through it. Life is over. And salvation is over. Salvation is over. There's nothing anybody can do for you now. That's why this teaching is so critical. Don't, 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 don't rest your hopes on somebody doing a little bit of adjusting and cleansing afterwards. You can't. Once you cross the finish line, every race, every racer knows it's over. You can't run again. It's over. That's the point. Bad news. There is no second chance after death. Good news. You don't need a second chance after death. You have a Savior before death. That's the good news. That's why Paul can be so utterly confident. I mean, did you notice this? My Roman Catholic friends, I want to ask you, did you notice there's no, there's no trace of fear in his voice? There's no anxiety like, I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be painful. I know once I die. There's none of that. Paul says, look at, look at, look at. I know. That little Ste- Stephanos. That little wreath has been put on the shelf of God's living room. And one day when I come out of death and I wake up from that sleep, I'm going to get that Stephanos on my head. And not, by the way, not only for me, but for everybody who loves the appearing of Christ. Oh, that's why Paul has no qualms, no questions. He's decided who his Savior is. In fact, look at this. Turn just two pages back to 1 Timothy 1. I mean, 2 Timothy 1, same book, 2 Timothy. Notice verse 12. Here is why Paul is so unequivocal and unafraid. Verse 12, that's why I'm suffering. He says, look, guys, I really am suffering. This hole that I'm in, it's bad. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet, watch this, this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day when he comes. I'm not worried. I got the crown. It's already set up for me. Because when I cross that finish line, the race is over. It's over. Wow. How can anyone be so unabashedly confident on the eve of his impending death? Ladies and gentlemen, it's called the everlasting gospel. Some people call it the forever and ever good news. So we exchange these papers, all right? My Roman Catholic college professor friend, in his paper to me, he said, Dwight, I have to have cleansing. I've read Matthew 5, verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I'm not perfect. I know that when I die, I will not be perfect. I want to be holy as God is holy. That's why I need a purgatory. I want to tell you something. I really admire that friend, that, that professor friend of mine. You know why? Because he has a heart longing to be like God. I want to be holy like God. I want to be perfect like God. 
I wish people who believe what I believe had the same passion and longing. I really do. Instead of settling for second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth best and just dribbling through life half like God and half like this planet. My Catholic professor friend says, Dwight, I've got to be holy, please. That's why I need purgatory. I tell you what, are you my friend? I have a verse for you. Go right back here to Hebrews 9. Where was it? We were in Hebrews 9. Look at Hebrews 10. We'll end it up right here. Look at Hebrews 10. My Roman Catholic friend, everything you hunger for, that which you are passionately thirsting for, here it is. Here it is. I want you to see this. Back to Hebrews chapter, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10. We were in Hebrews 9. Now we're in Hebrews 10. These words are written for you. Oh, my. Hebrews 10, 10. And by that will... Now, watch this. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And now notice verse 14. For by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Would you jot this down, please? Jesus' death was a once-for-all sacrifice for all. Jesus' death was a once-for-all sacrifice for all. In other words, it doesn't have to be repeated. Not in history, again and again and again. Not in the Mass, again and again and again. It doesn't have to be. It was a once-for-all for all Sacrifice. And notice, and here I affirm the longing of this friend of mine. Please notice verse 14. In fact, jot verse 14. I set it up there in the study guide so you can just jot it down. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect. Remember my friend? He said, Dwight, I've got to be perfect. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. Those who are being made. He said, Dwight, I've got to be holy. I want to be holy like God. Through one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The very longing of my Roman Catholic professor friend is provided in the once for all sacrifice on Calvary. Isn't this amazing? The very holiness and perfection that God calls for, He Himself provides in the gift of Jesus Christ on Calvary. What kind of a God is this who sets the bar so infinitely high we can never reach that bar? And then he says, I'll step in as the infinite one and cover the distance on your behalf. Ladies and gentlemen, it's called the everlasting gospel. Some people call it the forever and ever good news. That means it's good news at the beginning of human history and it will still be good news at the end of human history. My, oh my. Like that old gospel song sings, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Yeah. My holiness, my perfection, they are not contingent on my penance today or God's purgatory tomorrow. That I don't need it. I've done it. This is the only time you have, boy. This is where your probation is. Take what I've done. Run with it. You'll cross the finish line perfectly. Perfectly. If you run with me. Wow. And then, look, look, this only gets better. Go down to verse 21. And since we have a great priest 
over the house of God. That would be the, we have a great priest over the church of God. I wish you'd jot that down. Christ is not only our great sacrifice, He is our great priest over the church. The doctrine of purgatory teaches that the Pope and his representatives, the priests, have the authority to administer purgatory by their discretionary decisions, whether to remit entirely or partially the penalty of sins being suffered by the tens of thousands of souls who are detained in those cleansing fires. That's why they offer indulgences. It might be a partial easing of the punishment, or it could be a full remission of the penalty for all the sins before this moment. But it's the call. It's their call. They make the decision. Will it be partial or plenary? My dear friends, there is one priest, capital P priest, in the universe, who by his life and death and resurrection is the only one who can decide life and death for the human race. He's the only one. He's the only one. Verse 21 again, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, now I love 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, here comes, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure Water. Talking about cleansing and purification. Not after death one day. You can have it today. You can have it right now. In this split second, in this very place, you can be cleansed. You can be clean forever and ever. Right now. One of the joys of having to drive your car in the winter around this place. And we thought spring was coming. One of the joys is... That by driving on these roads, you get that awful sludge and salt and muck splashed and splattered all over your car. So one of my favorite rituals of the week comes on a Friday afternoon when I drive down to the, drive my old blazer down to the village car wash. I can hardly wait for this. So I put the five dollars in, only the express wash, not a penny more. And I I put the $5 in. I drive in. The door in front of me because it's winter is closed. I'm all alone. The doors are locked. Nobody can take me out now. And then, oh boy, oh boy, when those high-powered jet sprays begin to spit out that blue foam and they cover my whole car so even the windows are all covered and I really am alone then I know this is what I've been living for this week. (laughs) Because that foam, that foam would just drip. And as it drips, I'm saying, bring it on. Bring on that high-pressured rinse. Bring it on. And then, And when I drive out of there, it is the cleanest car in Berrien County. Hallelujah. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, that is precisely... What the gospel declares happens. Look at this. Is it? Can you believe this? First John, put it on the screen. First John, chapter one, verse seven. But if we walk in the light, 
as He is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. Now hold on, hold on. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies. The the New King James says, cleanses us from how many sins? How many sins? You tell me. All sins. Does that mean all sins in my past? Yep. Does that mean the sins I did last night? Yep. Does that mean the sins today? Yep. Every sin you have ever committed is cleansed. Is cleansed. Oh, Dwight, come on. Give me that. Give me that. How do I do it? Which button do I pick? Do I go through the express wash or what? Which one? I'm telling you, folks, this is the most express cleansing in the universe and it's the most lasting. And you get it this way. No charge. No almsgiving. No good works. Nothing but this. Watch this. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from how much unrighteousness? What does, what does it say, ladies and gentlemen? All, all, all. All sin, all unrighteousness, all stains, all muck, all guilty sludge, High-powered. And in a split second, the cleansing foam of Calvary just eats away what has gunked your heart and choked your life. Just like that. Hallelujah. William Cooper. It's spelled Cowper, but it really is pronounced Cooper was admitted to an insane asylum four times in his life, attempted to end his life by suicide three times. He struggled with the meaning of the gospel. He struggled. But every now and then, the good news of the everlasting gospel would break through. And one day, William Cooper sat down and he scribbled out these words, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all, all, all their guilty stains. Did that old hymn just make it up? Nope. We just saw it. It is the teaching of the Gospel. You don't need a cleansing after you die because there ain't nothing left to change after you die. You need the cleansing now. Don't wait. Don't you put it off. Don't you dare. Ah, but it's all wrapped up in Jesus. No wonder there's verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is faithful. You cannot save yourself, my friend. You cannot look at if you and I paid the penalty long enough, couldn't we finally pay off what we owe God? You know what? You could be punished forever and ever. You could never pay it off. My sin is so deeply ingrained into my very but the very core of my being, I can't pay it off. I can't go to the merits of the treasury of Christ and Mary and the saints, that treasury of merits. I can't draw on that. I can't I can't by performing deeds as a Protestant. Good deeds. I can't by worshiping on God's day. I can't save myself. 
I can return as much money as you wish. I can't buy salvation. It isn't bought by somebody who's faithful in his stewardship. You can't earn heaven. It's impossible. There aren't enough lifetimes for you to achieve enough money in that bank. You and I are bankrupt. We are bankrupt. Our only hope is that Jesus saves. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. So here's the question. Is it good news? No purgatory. I must tell you, there isn't a theologian that knows the Holy Scripture who will tell you there is purgatory. Not from Holy Scripture. There is no purgatory. And how about in this series, The Truth About Hell, where we've discovered that hell is yet future and it is of a short duration. Is that good news? Is it? I'm going to be honest with you. As I got ready for this little mini-series, I really struggled in my heart. I said, God, I'm going to blow this. I just know I'm going to blow this. My fumbling human inadequacy to somehow take the glory of the divine character and I'll fumble the ball. I'll drop it in the middle of our examination. And that's why we began this mini-series with Calvary. We went to the cross. Why did we go to the cross? Because Calvary is the only paradigm in human existence in which we can measure what hell really will be. Jesus died the second death. That, he died the death of hell. That's why we went to the cross. And then when we were through that, last week, did you notice, we pulled up the parental paradigm and we said, listen, Jesus, when He told us, He said, if you're going to pray one prayer in this life, here's the way you're supposed to pray. Our Father. He said, I just want you to call God Father. And when we saw the paradigm of God as a Father, when we saw the paradigm of God as a Father, we had to ask the question about the caricature. How could it be that a Father could burn and torture His children forever and ever and ever. Stop, Daddy! Stop! I've had enough punishment! No, 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 no! You're going to keep burning forever and ever. What father, what father would ever treat his children that way? Take me to that father. Take me to that father. He won't be a father of love. He cannot be. He's saying, okay, Dwight, okay, okay, okay. But I'll tell you what, i got a question. Why would God have hell at all? He shouldn't have hell at all. I mean, what's the point? of Revelation 20 says that the lost are like the sands of the sea. You mean He's just going to blow them away? I mean, is there a parent who would, even though, the, even though that little child is so naughty, is there a parent who would not do everything she could? Is there a mother who would not save that child if she could save that child? No matter how naughty the child. And you're saying that God doesn't? I want to end the story. I want to end the whole series with a story. It's a true story. And through its feeble efforts, maybe one last glimpse of the love of God. It happened on a Friday afternoon. The telephone in the parsonage rang in Salem, Oregon, where we were living. A voice screaming on the other end, the voice of a parishioner of mine. We can't find Georgie. We can't find Georgie. Georgie. Little six-year-old Georgie. Full of Nick. Full of life. Their only child. I leaped into my car. Raced over the interstate. Just a few blocks away. By the time I got there, the police were there. 
And they had found him. You see, they had a backyard pool. And over the winter months, algae, as it will happen, just grew dark and green. And there was no way that frantic mother could see beneath the algae. The EMTs were performing CPR on Georgie's lifeless body. We raced behind the ambulance to the hospital in Salem. First ER, then ICU. Georgie was on life support. The doctors were fighting to raise his body temperature. They were wrapping him in in silver heat, retaining aluminum blankets, infusing fluids into him. We sat with those numb parents for six long hours. While the medical team tried every experiment they could conceive in an attempt to save little Georgie's life. Finally, sometime just a few minutes after midnight, a doctor came out and gently but plainly described to the parents that they had done everything they could think of. There just is nothing. Georgie was on life support. There's no chance. There really is no chance we will ever be able to save him. And I sat there and watched as two parents agonized over what to do with their only child. I tell you what, listen to me carefully. Only a parent could understand the agony of that decision. Only a parent could understand. I sat there as they made their decision to unplug the life support and let their only child die. Only a parent could understand the agony That choice that he will have to make one day. And there will be a billion parents beneath his great white throne who will in a very limited measure know the love and the agony of the God who must make the only loving decision a heartbroken parent can make to turn off the life support system for a child that can never be saved now. And let her die. Let him die forever and ever. Amen. And then, it will be hell's darkest moment when God buries His head in His hands and cries inconsolably, and all who have chosen God over Lucifer will also weep with Him. For at last they have seen the truth. God is love forever and ever. Amen. We cannot end this series without making a decision. We cannot end this 
I have to make an appeal to you right now. This is it. There's no second opportunity. There's no second life. This is all we get. I want to make an invitation to you right now. It doesn't matter to me what religious community you belong to right now. I want to make an invitation. Would you be willing to join me today, right now, in asking the Christ of this Gospel to provide the cleansing of His promise and cleanse every sin you have ever sinned in your past. Every sin you and I have ever sinned today. And then ask Him every day for the rest of our lives to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no catch to this. This isn't like, well, you've got to join my church in order to do this. Are you, are you kidding me? This is global good news. All you have to do is ask Jesus to be your Savior and wash you in the heart wash of the Gospel. And like that, you are clean. You are pure. You are saved. How about it? I think, I think we ought to seize this moment, don't you? Reaffirm. Or for the first time, make the decision. You don't have to put your hand on a television set. I'm not into that. But if you're watching right now, and I know you are, you just raise your hand. There's nobody in the room but God. And you say, God, please, right now, I want to be clean. In Christ Jesus, my Savior, forgive me. Amen. You want to pray that same prayer? Come on. Don't stand because somebody beside you is standing. If you want Jesus to be the one who will take you to death, keeping you cleansed, then stand to your feet right now. And by standing to your feet, you say, Jesus, oh Jesus, today and today and today until you come, I want to be clean. The man who tried to commit suicide, the gospel finally broke through to him. I want to sing with you the words of that one stanza. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Let's sing that stanza together.
stanza one more time. We're going to sing it quiet as a prayer. You understand it is a prayer. You are saying, Jesus, take me into that flood. Cover me by your once-for-all sacrifice. And cleanse me to my core. And do it tomorrow. And I'll ask you the next day. And I'll ask you and I'll ask you until you come. And he says, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. Sing it as a prayer this time. We're going to sing it quietly now. Father, you promised it. You said, I'd, I'll send my son. It'll do it once for all, for everyone. And so we accept your promise. We choose to believe that the cleansing is now. In this instant, you have already answered our prayers. Oh God, now walk with us. No, let us walk with you. May the Father's love draw us near. In Jesus' name.